Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There isn't a part of our life that isn't being impacted by climate change. Our food security, disease prevalence, our access to resources, all of these are being impacted um, by climate change. Hello and welcome to another episode of Crazy Smart Asia. First off, I know, I know, we said we'd be back with a new series much sooner. Where has the time gone? But we're delighted to announce that Crazy Smart Asia will be back for a third season this November. Keep an eye on this feed or wherever you follow Gen T for announcements on the season three launch date. But until then, as a teaser to the full third season, we wanted to share with you a fascinating conversation Gen T hosted recently on climate change and how the actions we take as individuals can cause real global change. The wildfires that tore through parts of Asia this summer, a result of the scorching heat, are just the latest deadly consequences of human-caused climate change. Indeed, according to a recent UN report produced by more than 50 climate scientists, the frequency of such devastating wildfires will continue to surge, with a 30% increase predicted by 2050. Wildfires, melting glaciers, tropical storms of ever-increasing strength. It's all too easy to consider the effects of climate change and instantly switch off. It's too big. It's too scary. Nothing I do will matter anyway. But the impact isn't academic. It's very real. So we have to start getting real too. And if you think that nothing you or I can do as individuals will help, think again. That's what I discussed with Dr. Emma Camp and Natalie Chung as part of our virtual event series, Cloud Talk. A marine biologist whose research focuses on the physiology, ecology, and biochemistry of coral reefs Dr. Emma Camp is the deputy team leader of the Future Reefs program within the Climate Change Cluster at the University of Technology, Sydney. She's also a Rolex Awards for Enterprise Laureate, as well as a National Geographic Explorer, who is just as passionate about the involvement of girls and women in STEM as she is about coral reefs. Gen T honoree Natalie Chung is the co-founder of Hong Kong-based social enterprise VAIR, which promotes sustainable tourism and climate education. VAIR also offers eco-tours in Hong Kong, environmental education workshops and events, and travel recommendations with insights on nature conservation through its online platform. In February 2023, Natalie will be embarking on an expedition to Antarctica alongside renowned explorers such as Sylvia Earle to discover the impact of climate change on the region. Here's the conversation we had on how our everyday sustainable actions can have real global impact. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's begin with a definition. Uh, Emma, Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. Um, what does the phrase local action, global impact mean to you? Uh, Emma, perhaps you can kick us off. Thanks, Lynn. It's a pleasure to be here today. So for me, local impact means that anybody, anywhere can make a difference. And we have to change our mindset to think that individuals can't make a change because we just know now that that isn't the case. And that if we want this global change and this global impact, we want to address climate change. It takes each and every one of us to evaluate our own actions, our own businesses, our own commitments to ensure that we have that commitment that we need to ensure a better future for our planet. Mm, Natalie? Yeah, for me, um, I guess very much similar to Emma, um, local action means that understanding our individual efforts do add up. And a lot of the efforts and a lot of the changes are actually pushed by individuals, no matter it's activist work or advocacy in the policy agenda. So as long as we are able to aggregate our voices, we can demand the government and the private sector to do something differently and to rethink the whole business model, how it should be circular and how um, from the design level, we can integrate sustainability and concepts of regeneration in our design. Before we get too much into the actions that we can take to to reduce the effects of climate change, perhaps we can talk about some of those effects. Uh, I mentioned in my introduction some of the most dramatic consequences of climate change. But what about the smaller stuff, Emma? I mean, what are some of the other ways that climate change is affecting our everyday lives for the worse that many may not even attribute to our changing climate? Yeah, look, I would actually say there isn't a part of our life um, that isn't being impacted by climate change. Our food security, disease prevalence, our access to resources, all of these are being impacted um, by climate change. And I guess for myself, I'm a marine biologist, a coral scientist. And, you know, something that people may not be aware of is that we're losing coral reefs around the world Um uh, through climate change. But what does that actually mean? You know, if, if you're not in a reef bearing country, what, what impact does that have if we lose these systems? Well, say you're at coral reef, if we lose that system, we lose all the ecosystem services that provides. And that includes, for example, um, compounds that are used in pharmaceuticals. So there are compounds derived from coral reefs that are used in cancer treatments and hearts and, you know, uh, disease medications. And so if we lose these systems because of climate change, things that we fundamentally rely on are going to be lost with them. Mm. So there's so much at stake, some of which which is obviously visible to us, some of which uh, is equally important, but is not as uh, apparent. Um, I want to question, ask a question to both of you, Natalie, first. Um, many people, given so much, is given what is at stake, many people have an all or nothing mentality because of how big the stakes are when it comes to activism. What would you say are some of the advantages and drawbacks of that approach? And what model do you personally subscribe to? That's an excellent question, Lee. Um, I feel like a lot of people do think um, it's either I become vegan or I'm, I eat meat. I love eating meat. And people seldom see the connection between like a small action and how the small action step can lead to a much bigger change. 
be it um, around your surrounding and influencing people around you. So instead of um, doing something very differently, I would recommend an incremental approach. Um, if you are a meat lover, maybe you can try some new products like um, Impossible Burger, Beyond Burger, and try to tick substitutional uh, behaviors that can still give you the same enjoyment, but at the same time can reduce environmental impact. And even for a small switch, like switching from plastic toothbrush to a bamboo toothbrush, can already save so much plastic, given that you switch your toothbrush every one month. And when you calculate that, you can understand even you're not doing something very transformational, a little habit would count and could contribute um, accumulate to bigger efforts. Right. Uh, Emma, would you concur? Yeah, absolutely. I think everything Natalie said um, resonates with me. And I, I think that iterative approach that Natalie mentioned is is just so key. I hear from people over and over again that they don't see how they kind of can make a difference or the, the changes that they may be able to make are so small that they feel insignificant in the schema of the, the challenges that we're facing. But if everybody took that approach, we would be going backwards. But we're, we're not. We're seeing positive change already. And that's all stemmed from one individual somewhere making a choice to do something differently and with that momentum builds and then two people make that choice and then three and four and eventually you've got a whole movement of people traveling in the same direction to actually force and change the tide and the direction um, of how things are heading Mm. so we don't need to eat a completely vegan diet and and go on holiday via sailboat to make a difference right there is some some middle ground um so uh, on that note, I'd, I'd love to ask both of you um, what some of the habits are that you've incorporated into your lives uh, to reduce your impact on the environment that if, if we all did would have a truly uh, global effect, Emma. So for me, one of the biggest ones is, has been to um, assess the flights that I take. Uh, I'm a marine biologist. I travel to study reefs. So one thing I let's do is do I really need to take that flight? Is there other ways for me to get to sites? If I do have to fly, can I meaningfully offset that that travel or can I pull trips together to try and limit the number of flights that I take and um, definitely the types of foods that I eat and really trying to understand the circular economy that is associated with that food and we heard from Natalie a little bit um about this but for me as you know I think I'm relatively aware of of, the, of what's going on in this space but actually when you start to kind of look into certain products you realize that there's actually more um it's more complex the full circle and cycle of products needs to be considered to really um ensure that we're having the positive impact that we hope that we are so just educating myself as well in terms of the choices and, and the decisions I make um, and finally, I would say, you know, if you're able to vote and that, and that you have that privilege, that you're really educating and understanding where climate fits in the agenda for the people that you're voting for. Mm, it's not just about your consumer choices. It's about um, standing up and being counted politically as well. Um, Natalie, what would you add to that? Yep, for sure. Um, I think in this day and age, a lot of companies are claiming their net zero target or carbon neutral but it's very difficult to assess which one is actually doing it or doing it um, with accountability and enough transparency for consumers. Um, So there are sites uh, online where you can assess company whether they are really achieving their target, such as a website I discovered recently called Greenwash, 
Um, where you can enter a brand and they will tell you whether this brand has done some greenwashing before. Um, so I think this is a great way just to get informed as a consumer. And adding to Emma's point on flights, and obviously I run my own ecotourism business in Hong Kong, and we started with a concept of hoping that people would um, cut off the flash bites, um, especially before COVID, a lot of Hong Kong people tend to travel quite often. And little did we realize um, that contributes to over 20% of our per capita carbon footprint. And these figures are often not accounted for because they're transboundary emissions and government mm. also don't have um, very strict regulations around that. So I think really um, discovering um, eco-tourism hotspots around you and try to understand the communities and you'll discover there's so much more um, worth visiting than just to take a short flight to Taiwan or Japan for a short-term entertainment. Right. Um, at Ver Natalie, uh, your travel-focused social enterprise, you teach environmental education workshops, I believe. Um, I'm wondering if there's one lesson in particular that really surprises your students because of either how simple it is to execute or conversely, just how, how challenging it is to stick to. I feel like uh, when we do ecotourism and when we host educational workshops, um, there are some very simple rules that people may not um, understand or even uh, the impact of doing something. For example, a few of my friends asked, uh, what difference could we make uh, by not using plastic straw? And why would plastic straw end up in oceans? I guess Emma might be able to add more to that. But um, telling them how the whole ecosystem works and what are the ways that sometimes rubbish could get into ocean, even though we throw them into the rubbish bin. For instance, there used to be a lot of rubbish bins along hiking trails in Hong Kong, but they are all removed now. That's the, um, the reason behind it is even though you throw them in the rubbish bins, sometimes wild animals could come over and cows, they might mistake it as um, their own food source and eat it accidentally. Or some monkeys, they would uh, play around the rubbish bin and then all the bins end up going into the soil and decomposing into the soil into toxic materials and microplastic. So um, I think educating people about how our consumer choices would lead to environmental impact um, without our attention. Um, that is a very core part of environmental education and telling them mm. about the whole value chain, how it works, um, how a strawberry gets planted in a farm in the USA and get transported here, how much emissions is involved in transportation and the freight. Um, yeah, so I think telling them about the whole, the full story behind every consumer product. Right. Education is is key. Um, you mentioned earlier the eco tours that, that your social enterprise of air organizes. Can you help to define for, for those uh, who may not be as familiar, including myself, what exactly is an eco tour and, and how does it differ uh, fundamentally from other forms of tourism? So eco tourism is defined as a, a kind of uh, tourist activity that relies on natural resources and and the ecosystems as a source of education and entertainment. And there are some regions which are very highly ecologically sensitive, like marine protected areas. For those areas, we wouldn't suggest um, doing an eco-tour there. So for the areas that are open for research and education are usually those that are slightly less um, sensitive um, as an area, but they still offer very valuable insight and valuable species for people to observe from a distance. And nowadays, we also have a new term called the regenerative tourism, which is something a bit more than ecotourism, not just 
observing nature and preserving it, but also doing some uh, behaviors or carrying out actions that can add positive impact on the environment, such as uh, tree planting, um, coral reef um, restoration, uh, like adding some uh, 3D structures uh, underneath the ocean to allow corals to rehabilitate and to rejuvenate. Um, so these are some of the tours that we've been hosting recently, doing, um, allowing tourists to take actions that can help um, add positive benefits to the nature, which is even make it even better than before you travel to that area. Wow, I love that idea of not just you know treading lightly, not making an impact, but regeneration actually working to make the uh, make the the, the the environment better while you travel. That's fantastic, Emma. The rapidly declining coral reefs, uh, just just to change gear a little bit, um, obviously is is your area of expertise, um, and that is one of those issues that it's easy as an individual, uh, as I said in my introduction, to really feel helpless to prevent. Um, the people who are watching this today, um, who want to start making a difference, what should be their first steps? How can they really start to go from A to B to C to start to take actions to contribute towards this cause? Great question, Lee. And I would begin by answering that by saying that anything you can do to reduce your carbon footprint will have an uh, impact positively on coral reefs. That is undoubtedly the biggest threat to coral reefs globally at the moment. So that can be what we've talked about in terms of reducing your flights, you know, reusing clothes, reusing products, repurposing, upscaling, um, looking to, you know, the choices that you make as, as a consumer. But a step further with that, I would say, is also to engage with nature and not see it as this um this entity that is separate to us we're very much connected and so if you live near a coral reef and you can get engaged with you know any any science or any uh, tourism that is is going on there is lots of ecotourism obviously as we heard from Natalie and here on the Great Barrier Reef we're increasingly working with tour operators through something called the Coral Nurture Program to get um, more stakeholders actively engaged with the management and conservation of reefs so that means that when individuals come out they can and learn about the pro the problems and just by educating yourself you're contributing knowledge to you know that can translate to, to solutions the other thing I would say is to not assume it's someone else's problem so again it's thinking about what skill set do you have that could be used to come up with innovation you mentioned innovation Lee, and I think that that is absolutely what is needed and what is going to get us kind of through you know the challenges that we now face we're not going to be able to change all behaviors and um, some of them have been embedded for years but what we can do is look for innovation and new solutions to make the future better and not feel like we're stepping back in time by having to sacrifice things that have now become um, a part of our everyday life so i guess my take homes would definitely be um to yeah explore innovation to think how you can engage and to look at ways to reduce um, your carbon footprint Emma, over the last few years, what specific technological innovations in the fight against climate change or for reef preservation have excited you the most or do you think has the potential to have the, the biggest impact? So there's lots. This is a tough one. There's lots going on. I mean, for, for me, one of the key things has been some of the smart sensor technology and some of the AI and robotics. And that's because we for the oceans, there's we know we know more about some parts of space than we do about the deep ocean. So, you know, we, we still have a fundamental knowledge gap. And if we don't know what's there or what we're losing or how it works, then we can't manage and conserve and 
look at innovative ways to better protect it. So for me, this sense of technology that can help us understand the changes, the tipping points, the vulnerable areas, the areas that have got a better chance of surviving um, has been really key. Mm. As well as an environmental advocate, uh, Emma, you also work tirelessly to encourage more women and girls in STEM, uh, which, of course, can make a massive difference to, to what you were just mentioning. Can you share a little bit more about the work that you're doing in this area and the potential impact uh, on the environment, not to mention innovation in general, of more women and girls in STEM? Yeah, look, thanks, Lee. So I think for me, you know, where where my focus for kind of women and STEM engagement first spanned was that I learned that when we think about climate change, actually women and minority groups are going to be disproportionately impacted by the negative effects of climate change. And mm. so they have to be part of the solution. They have to be part of the voice and the discussion. They have to have a seat at the table to ensure that we have the capabilities to best manage climate change. So that has been one of the motivators. And and for me, when I was, you know, in high school, I I didn't have, you know, female scientists coming into the university or into the high school, into the primary school to talk to me about science and what it was. My view of what a scientist was, was, you know, an older grey Einstein looking man, because that was just my perception. And we have to change that. People, you know, I really believe if people can't see something, it's really hard to believe you can be something. And so we have to we have to provide these role models and and get um get kind of these uh, diverse, you know, um yeah, role models out there to ensure that we're encouraging and motivating um, engagement of women and girls in STEM. And so for me, that's involved doing lots of uh, public talks, school talks, um, challenging, um, you know, through discussions with the government and local government, how we can meaningfully engage um, women and girls in STEM. This has involved also talks at the UN about what it means to have um, women and girls in STEM. And for me, you know, a really crucial point is not just getting women and girls into STEM but keeping them because that's the big challenge depending on where you are but for us here in Australia it's a really big challenge we can get women and girls into a lot of the sciences engineering not so much but a lot of the sciences we get we get them that's great but we don't keep them so when you look at the high paid CEO positions the professors the you know chairs of, of departments the women aren't there in general and that's a problem and that's something that we have to tackle institutionally around um, ensuring that we are creating an environment where women and girls can feel safe and thrive and survive. And so that's kind of really where that's become a passion. Speaking of of innovation and bold new ideas which are moving the needle forward, the Rolex Awards for Enterprise recognise individuals who are doing just that, right? Making a difference and helping to solve some of the world's biggest challenges. Um, How does being a Rolex laureate uh, for yourself empower you as an advocate for reef preservation and sustainability? Um, And what has it meant to you to be part of a prestigious programme? I believe there's only 155 of you in in the world. It's a pretty elite group you're, you're in. Thank you, Lee. Yeah, look, it's been um, a huge honour and privilege to be one of the Rolex laureates. And, you know, 
through their support, I've had financial support to conduct some of the innovative research that we've been looking at to try to find corals that have got a better chance to survive climate change. That's kind of the premise of my research is to try and find the naturally tolerant corals and, and ask how can we use that in innovative solutions to actually ensure that some reefs um, persist into the future. And then obviously through the network that Rolex has, having the opportunity to speak about the work to get the message out to a greater and more diverse portfolio of people has ultimately been you know game changing in terms of my other efforts to ensure that we as scientists are actually getting the research that we're doing out there so I think that's where um, the Rolex Awards have been really helpful. We've talked a lot over the last 25 minutes about successes uh, of, of which there have been many and we're making so many so much great progress uh, in general in terms of innovation around the climate but as we all know there were always a few brickbacks along the way, right? So I, I want to know um, what have been uh, some of the biggest challenges that you personally have faced on your journey uh, and how have you overcome them? Um, Natalie? Um, I think for me and for a lot of um, fellow climate advocates like um, me from around the world, our biggest challenge is to get the message across to people who don't care about climate change at all. Um, so Yale University, they did a study on climate change communication um, since 2007, which divides America into six, type of, six types of people, like people who are very alarmed about climate change, concerned, and as well as people who are completely um, don't care at all. They completely are not um, concerned about climate change. So how do we motivate those people? And I think the important thing is really to segment our audience and to target our message to different groups. And I also remember reading a book by a Swedish author called uh, What Do We Think About When We Don't Talk About Climate, uh, Global Warming? So the book is about how um, we need to tell people who don't want to care about global warming at all that they need to do something about it. It is by um, speaking on relevant issues such as healthcare, how um, climate change is actually accelerating COVID-19 and the negative impacts of it, because um, uh, areas with higher um, greenhouse gas emissions and with more air pollutants, people are more likely to die from COVID-19. And there are also other issues such as reducing distance between men and nature, and men and wildlife, leading to more animal-borne diseases to be spread and to become pandemic like monkeypox. So I think and getting these messages across would be a great way to overcome the challenge of disconcern and disengagement um, towards climate change. Mm, absolutely. Um, Emma, what about you? What has been the, the biggest challenge, a big, a big challenge that you have faced and how have you overcome it? So I would say probably the biggest one Natalie just touched on, and, and that has definitely been the same in, in my field, is you know if we take the impact that climate change has been having on reefs as an example, we've known for decades but we're still facing this challenge and, and it's because of the reasons that that we just heard about. So mm. I will give a different answer, um, although that I think that the one that Natalie gave is definitely probably my top response. But I think the second, maybe more personal response is, is the challenge of keeping going, keeping, you know, as an individual that's so passionate about something. So again, I'll go back to coral reefs. I'm seeing them die um in my lifetime i'm questioning whether my children are going to see coral reefs and that's despite all my efforts as an ocean advocate as a scientist as an innovator to see change and so 
we have to work out how we don't burn out. How do we, as communicators, as scientists, as climate act- activists, keep our motivation, but also keep our mental health in a, in a position where it just doesn't feel too much? And it, this is a challenge, but I think it's something we're becoming more aware about. We're talking about the impact that you know climate change is having on our health and well-being, and that includes our mental health. And I think that finding ways that we can see we are making a difference and trusting that if we continue to do that as a collective we will see a better future and for me is the way that I've kind of overcome that and used it as a motivator rather than something that causes you to kind of just step back and feel that it's too big or too much to to get involved with. Right and we all have a role to play in that right Um, no matter no matter what your profession you know climate scientist or not people such as myself in the media have a role to play in in communicating it Um, as you mentioned communication is key and it's also very very heartening to see just how many people are joining us on the Wednesday lunchtime for this panel discussion that shows that people are engaged with the topic they want want to speak more about the topic and, and thank you all so much for joining us. Um, last couple of questions um, from me. As we wrap up, people are going to prepare to go eat their lunch um, across Asia. What is one simple, non-intimidating message that won't have people going la 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 la? You know, a non-intimidating message that you recommend we can all go tell our friends um, as we eat, like a little thing that they can do to start to make a difference. Uh, Natalie, I think it's to start adopting a planet-friendly diet. Uh, so maybe it's not turning vegan immediately, but adding um, some of the products like beans in your diet, um, eat more beans because um, <laughs> even though uh, like I think bean is a great source of plant protein that can help replace meat and also planting beans uh, as a legume that fix nitrogen in the air to become natural fertilizers for the soil. So actually eating more bean can improve soil quality overall. Eat more beans. I love what you said in the in the chat box earlier. Think about a low carbon diet, not low carb. Low carbon, not low carb. That's fantastic. Um, Emma, I would say challenge yourself. What is it that you're really good at or you're really passionate about? You know, whatever it is, media, accounting. I don't know, whatever it is, and think how could you turn that skill set, that passion towards doing good for the environment and is it just communicating the challenges that the the you know the environment is facing is it looking at novel ways to you know account carbon credits i don't know there's just, you know anybody can come up with novel solutions but i would just encourage you to engage with the problem so that you can then become part of the solution mm. finally um if our audience remembers one thing from this panel discussion in six months 12 months time you know the, the one soundbite you want them to go away today ringing in their ears what should it be what, what, what's the key takeaway emma For me, it's that we're connected to nature and the choices we make now will determine our health, well-being and that of the environment in the future. For me, it's to go and explore your surrounding and immerse in the nature environment and ecosystems and think of uh, what you can do to make it better than before. Well, we've covered so much ground. It's been such a fascinating conversation filled with, with, with insights and, and sharings. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Emma Camp and, and Natalie Chung, uh, for being with us today, uh, for sharing your stories and your insights. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this very special bonus edition of Crazy Smart Asia. We'll be back in November with the full third season. But until then, do try to remember... We know more about some parts of space than we do about the deep ocean. See you next time.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.